Missionary George Verwer once said, we seem to have a strange idea of Christian service. We will buy books, travel miles to hear a speaker on blessings, pay large sums to hear a group singing the latest Christian songs, but we forget that we are soldiers. Throughout scripture, God's people are described as soldiers engaged in a spiritual war that often has physical consequences. The Bible tells us we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6, 12. And yet at the same time, Jesus said in the world, you will have tribulation, John 16, 33. Why? Because everything that happens in the natural realm is a reflection of what is going on in the spiritual realm. Which means the spiritual battles that we fight often manifest consequences in our everyday lives, whether that's through other people's behavior toward you, or circumstances you face, or struggles brought to bear in your life that you didn't ask for. Listen, as materially, as physically real as whatever you may be going through is, you understand it's all spiritual. There is a spiritual component to every physical thing that you will ever face in this life. In fact, the entire physical world is under a curse because of the sin committed all the way back in Genesis. Sin that was acted out in the physical material realm, but was first committed in the hearts of Adam and Eve as an act of spiritual treason, rebellion against God. James, the brother of Jesus, said, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Matthew 15, 19, and 20. Sin is not born out of the physical realm. It's born from the spiritual realm and then acted out in the physical Okay, what happens in the natural realm is always a reflection of what, hap- what is happening in the spiritual realm, <clears throat> which is important for us to understand as we embark on this new sermon series, working our way through the book of Revelation, as the veil between us and the spirit realm is peeled back, and we get a glimpse not only of what's happening in the spiritual realm, but how that is affecting and is going to increasingly affect our everyday lives in the natural realm. And here's a hint, it isn't going to get easier. Okay, the closer we come to the end of this age, the harder it's going to get for us, for God's people, it's supposed to. There's no easy button where we get to escape the trials and tribulations. We just read what Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. Now listen, at the same time, That is not a cause for despair, because we know the end of the story. I mean, as terrifying as this book of Revelation seems to be at times, it is also the most hope-filled book in all of Scripture, because it tells us what happens at the end of the story. We get to be with Jesus and each other in paradise, a perfected world forever. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Revelation 21.4. So there's no reason to despair for those who are in Christ, even though there will be consequences. Listen, 
sometimes severe consequences in the physical because of our spiritual solidarity to Christ and his gospel and our obedience to his word, which by the way, is not unique to our generation. In fact, it started when the church started all the way back in the first century and it's been building ever since and will continue to until Jesus returns. The fact is, the church has never been exempt from tribulation. So why do we think we will be? The church has never been exempt from tribulation, which again is just a reflection of the assault from the spiritual forces of darkness against God's people, okay? According to uh, the early church fathers, Arrhenius, Eusebius, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, uh, Victorinus, Jerome, just to name a few, this book was written around AD 95 under the reign of the Roman Emperor Domitian, and at that time Christians were experiencing severe persecution, tribulation, because of their refusal to worship the Roman emperor, because of course they believed that Jesus was Lord, not whichever guy happened to be ruling the Roman empire at the time. And the pressure was building on the church. It started with, actually back before then, Julius Caesar who accepted worship as a God during his lifetime. Like he was okay with the fact that people did that. Then later Augustus actually sanctioned temples to himself in the Roman provinces, and then following his death, he was worshiped widely in Asia and the Western provinces. But then Caligula, sometime after Augustus, he was not content with voluntary worship, so he demanded that his subjects everywhere worship him and pay homage to his statue. And then by the time of Nero, the imperial cult was firmly established as a religious institution, right up to the reign of Domitian, where failure to honor the emperor as a god became a political and punishable offense. And those early Christians were experiencing the consequences in the physical realm of the battle that was already taking place in the spiritual realm. And for them, there was no compromise, no surrender, no turning back. It was an, it was an all or nothing proposition. Look, no one willingly dies for a lie. All they had to do was renounce their faith, their claim to the gospel, and walk away, but they didn't because they knew it was all true. They also knew just as Jesus came the first time that he was coming back again, and so for them, there was no turning back. And so according to the church fathers in early church history, the apostle Paul was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. Thomas was run through with four spears by soldiers in India. Philip was tortured to death in Asia Minor. Bartholomew was flayed to death with a whip in Armenia. Matthew was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned and then clubbed to death. Matthias was burned to death. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross in Greece. James, the brother of Jesus and pastor of the church in Jerusalem, was thrown off the southeast pinnacle of the temple for refusing to deny his faith. It was more than a hundred foot drop, and yet he miraculously survives the fall, so his attackers beat him to death instead. And John, the beloved disciple, was exiled to the island of Patmos after being boiled in oil in Rome. And there in isolation, after all the other apostles were brutally tortured and killed, alone on that island he was given a vision by Christ himself, a vision not just of what was yet to come for the church, 
but what was already happening to the church. Right, just read back through the description of what already happened to them. It's not like it could get worse, right? Boiled in oil, thrown off the top of a building, burned to death, beaten to death, crucified upside down, tied to wooden stakes and lit on fire, alive to light Nero's garden at night for his party guests. The fact is the church has been experiencing tribulation since the church began and will continue to until Jesus returns. I mean, we don't have time today to read about the persecution that's been happening to Christians all around the world from the first century right up to today. We just had lunch, me and Mary Beth and Avery. We had lunch last Sunday with a family from China. They're now, they're now missionaries to America, this Chinese family. And we sat there at the restaurant and listened to the father and mother tell us one story after another after another about being arrested, put in prison, tortured and beaten within an inch of their lives over and over again because of their testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the only reason they came here to America was because they became pregnant with their second child at the time. China had a one-child policy, which meant fines and often forced abortions for those who violated it. The truth is, the church has never been exempt from tribulation, so why do we think we will be in America? Because look, the book of Revelation, I hope you understand, it wasn't written as an escape clause for Christians when times get tough. No, it was written to prepare us for the return of Christ in the midst of tribulation for the church. Now, listen, there's the seven-year tribulation period that precedes Christ's return described in this book from chapter 6 on. And, of course, an ongoing debate about whether the church will be raptured before or during or after that tribulation. We'll get into all of that as we go through this book. But the point here today is whether or not we're here for that particular period of time in history, we'd better be prepared for what we know is coming. The return of Jesus Christ to gather his people. Whether that happens, uh, even if it means experiencing life-threatening persecution, whenever that happens, right before he gets here, just as the church already has been experiencing from the first century to the 21st century, we need to be prepared prepared for his return because until that day listen some form of tribulation for the church is guaranteed as we're going to see of course the question is how will you respond when that day comes to you and to me because look as as john was writing down this revelation all the way back in the first century there were those in the church then who were advocating for a policy of compromise why to escape the persecution they were already experiencing. They were watering down the gospel to make life easier for them because the heat was being turned up on the church. I'm just asking you, are we going to do the same thing? Like those first Christians, like John and the other apostles, will we stand firm in the face of the worst persecution and even the threat of death, or will we buckle under the pressure and compromise our convictions? Because for John... And those who died before him, no matter how bad it got, for them, there was no turning back. 
So let's turn there together to Revelation and we'll work through the first chapter today, which is really an introduction to the rest of the book. But listen, this is also, this chapter, it is critical to understanding the rest of the book because this first chapter really communicates the subject of the book, the purpose of the book, and the audience of the book, and what the result should be, most importantly, of reading it, what the result should be in our everyday lives. Revelation 1, we'll begin with the first three verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So the first chapter opens up with the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in in antiquity, of course, these books were written on scrolls with the title of the book uh, being written on the outside of the scroll. And then by the middle of the second century, the scribes began transcribing the earlier writings into codexes, which are basically, essentially, like the books we have today. So the titles that originally appeared on the outside of the scrolls now appear in our present-day versions as the opening line of the document, which means the revelation of Jesus Christ is not only the opening of this book, it's actually also the proper title of the book, which informs us of the subject of the entire book. It's Jesus Christ. Not the Antichrist, not Satan, not the scary stories or looming predictions. It's Jesus Christ and the hope that we have in him from start to finish. In fact, the book opens with a direct revelation of Jesus to John, chapter 1, verses 13 through 20, as we'll see in its climax is the revelation of Jesus from heaven in chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. So the entire book is about Jesus Christ and his triumphant return for his people. Yet Jesus Christ is not only the subject of the book, he's in fact the author of the book. As John explains, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. If you have a red letter edition of your Bible, you'll see lots of red letters in Revelation, which John records from an island off of the coast of Turkey called Patmos, a small Greek island in the Aegean Sea, which in New Testament times was a destination for criminals and political prisoners where the convicts, for the most part, were permitted to roam free on the small island. Uh, And yet they had to provide their own food and shelter and were guarded by Roman soldiers from leaving. So uh, many of them actually died of exposure or violent attacks by other convicts or even starvation. So this is no vacation on the Greek Isles for John. And it was there that John, as history tells it, church history, that he found a cave to shelter in where he received this vision, the revelation of Jesus Christ that he wrote down for every generation to come. And he says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. That's all of us. Listen, much has been made, by the way, of the fact that John says the time is near, of course, since it's been 2,000 years and Jesus hasn't returned yet. But you have to understand, first of all, it wasn't just John. This was a common way of expressing end time events in the first century Greek language. Jesus taught that God would vindicate his people speedily. 
He says, without delay, in Luke 18.8, Paul wrote to the Romans that God would soon crush Satan under their feet in Romans 16.20, which makes sense when you look at the ancient Greek word that they used for time, it's kairos, it was commonly used in an eschatological sense, like when we talk about the end times, it was meant to indicate a time of crisis or a decisive moment in history. Again, when you, when you look at what was already happening to the church in the first century, for them, the end times had already begun, right? And they continue today for much of the church all around the world, right? Until the imminent or at any moment return of Christ. And so rather than focusing on the when part of this statement by John, we really should be paying attention to the what part of this statement. What is our response to be? Because when John says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, that's actually the first of seven beatitudes in Revelation that lay out for us the whole purpose of the book. And so he says, a blessing will come upon the one who hears and obeys the divine imperatives, the commands in this book. And by the way, chapter 22, he says, a curse will come upon those who don't. Keep that in mind. It's, it's really important that we get what John is saying here, that revelation is a call to personal discipleship. Okay, not so much a call for us to go and make disciples. Now, of course, that's really important for us to do as Jesus commanded Matthew 28, 19. But this is different. This is specifically a command for us to submit ourselves to the ongoing process of discipleship personally through the teaching of God's word. How? By hearing and keeping the word of God. And the word keep that John uses there, tereo, in the ancient Greek, is the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 28, 20 and John 15, 10 when he talks about keeping his commandments. It means literally to attend to carefully. This is hearing God's word, what we're doing right now, and then keeping it, obeying it, doing it by attending to it carefully when we leave here. Right? It's living out his word in your own life. It's submitting yourself to the truth and authority of his word, whether you like what it says or not, until it changes you from the inside out. But to do that, you have to attend to it, John says, carefully. Why? Why carefully? Well, because if we're not careful with the word of God, we'll misinterpret it to mean whatever we want it to mean, which is, of course, what professing believers do all the time. Why? Because we don't want to submit ourselves to the authority of the word. The, part, the parts that instruct us to live in a way that's different than the way we're living now. Right? To correct the parts of our lives we're commanded to change, but we're unwilling to, to. To become someone we don't want to become because of the sacrifice it necessarily demands. So often I think we hear his word, but we don't necessarily attend to it carefully. We don't keep it, as John says, and as Jesus commands. And by the way, it matters. Not only for yourself, but it matters for the people around you, the people that you are called to disciple. Because look, if you don't make discipleship a priority in your own life, you will never make it a priority in someone else's. That's a fact. If you don't make discipleship a priority in your own life, you will never make it a priority in someone else's. I'm convinced the main reason we don't make disciples as Jesus commanded us to is because we refuse to allow ourselves to be discipled. 
Do you have any idea how hard it is today to give direction or God forbid correction to people about how they're living their lives? Or about how they interpret scripture to the benefit of their own personal preferences or about their own truth? Nobody wants to hear it. We all want to be right and we want other people to validate everything we believe without any accountability or correction whatsoever. We want to compromise God's word where it suits us and then we expect everyone else to validate our personal beliefs without question. Listen, the churches in Asia Minor were at a crossroads in the first century. They were deeply impacted by persecution and being drawn toward living lives of compromise that might soften the persecution. And look, although Christians in today's world may face different specific temptations, the basic temptation to succumb to the world's pressure remains the same. And yet when we face such temptation, Christ's revelation to us is what puts everything back into perspective. But only if we heed it, only if we attend to it, Carefully, only if we submit to it as it is written, not our own version of it, right? God's word does us absolutely no good if we're not willing to submit our lives to it, to be changed by it, to be corrected by it, discipled by it. Because look, no matter how difficult our situation, Revelation announces that God is still in control and that he will conclude this stage of history the way that he promised he would. His revelation is a promise, but it comes with a demand. A demand to be discipled by the truth of his word, his way, not ours. So just ask yourself, when's the last time I allowed myself to be discipled by someone else teaching me God's word? When's the last time I allowed myself to be corrected about my behavior or my attitude towards something or someone else? When, when's the last time I admitted an error in my thinking or understanding and then submitted myself to that correction according to God's word? It's not, it's not easy to do that, of course, and it requires a degree of humility. Just a couple weeks ago, we brought in a small group of people from a ministry in Texas to teach our entire staff, me included, about how we're doing ministry here, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we were instructed and discipled and corrected. And some of it was hard to hear. But we needed to hear it. And more than that, we need to heed it, to receive it and submit to it and allow it to change us which isn't always fun, but it's life-giving, and it prepares you for what is next, which is why John says, blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. In other words, it's not about trying to figure out when he's coming. It's about understanding that he is coming, and the only way to be ready for his coming is by hearing and keeping his word, which is a blessing because it prepares you for what's coming next. It's the only way you'll be able to stand firm in the face of whatever lies ahead. No compromise, no surrender, no turning back. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one of my heroes of the faith, the man who through his writings has corrected me more times than I can count. 
and discipled me in more ways than I can explain. He once said this. He said, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ, his revelation of the Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Let's keep reading, verses four through eight. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So John starts out with to the seven churches that are in Asia. Asia was a common designation for the Roman province of Western Asia Minor, modern uh, Western Turkey, stretching all the way inland to the Anatolian Plateau. It's the area uh, represented by the ancient kingdom of Pergamum, which in 133 BC fell to the Romans. It's also where Christianity was flourishing with all of the tribulation and trials and persecution was flourishing by the end of the first century. In fact, there's a governor uh, of Bithynia in northern Turkey early in the second century who complained to the emperor that the pagan temples were being forsaken because the Christian church was spreading so quickly. And so John writes to the most prominent and strategic seven cities in the region from which word would quickly spread to the outlying areas. In fact, the leading council of Asiarchs, officials of the province, according to Acts 19.31, met each year in a succession of seven cities, which are exactly the same seven cities to which John writes here, because he knew that word would spread from these seven churches to all of Roman Asia and the rest of the known world because these seven cities were located on the great circular road that bound together the most populous, wealthy, and influential part of the entire province. So this was written to seven literal churches, the most influential, strategically located churches at the time in Asia Minor, following the same sequence in which a messenger traveling the Roman roads would deliver the book, which we'll come back to in the final portion of this message. And then John says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. So grace and peace clearly from the Father and the Son. What about these seven spirits who were before his throne? Well, there's, of course, some debate about that, as there are in most things in Revelation. Listen, early Jewish writings talk about seven archangels before God's throne. And given the angels of the seven churches mentioned in verse 20 of this chapter, some believe that's who John was referring to. Uh, however, I think 
it's worth noting that there is a sevenfold spirit described in Isaiah 11:2, which is actually a description of the Holy Spirit, which is especially clear in the Septuagint version of Isaiah, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament. And also, as we'll see in the coming weeks, Revelation presents the Holy Spirit as one person, but also appearing as seven spirits in chapters three and four and other places, also as seven torches of fire in chapter four, and as seven eyes in chapter five. So I think it makes more sense to view grace and peace as coming from the Father, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the Son, the Trinitarian Godhead, rather than from the Father and the Son and some angels. And then in verses five and six, John reminds us not only what God saves us from, uh, namely our sins, but really his wrath as a result of that sin, but what he saves us for, to be kingdom priests, a kingdom of priests to God, not at some unknown point in the future, but right now, today, even under times of great tribulation, which again, they were already under times of great tribulation, because as John points out in verses 7 and 8, by quoting two Old Testament passages, Daniel 7.13 and Zechariah 12.10, that God's eternal power, already seen in the past and guaranteed in the future, is still at work, in the present, which is the point of all this. The church John was writing to wasn't symbolic of something far off in the future. No, he was writing to the literal present day church in every age, then and now, and in every age to come until Jesus returns, okay? Revelation unveils the future, yes, but its focus is on the present. Yes, in verse seven, John says that Jesus is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. That's in the future, yes. Yes, he announces the future coming of Christ, but the address of this entire book is to the church at present. Now, whenever it's being read, whether that's the first century or the 21st century, this book isn't just for the church sometime in the future, it's for the church today. Okay, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. But we do know he meant this revelation for us right now, to heed its commands today. To him who loves us and has freed us, not who will free us, from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, not who will make us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. This is addressed to us Today, he's talking about the church at present, whether then or now. Again, this was written to seven literal churches in literal Asia Minor, following the same sequence in which a messenger traveling Roman roads at the time would have delivered the book to them. Okay, look, there's, uh, there's plenty of symbolism in this book. We'll get into all that. There's plenty of symbolism in this book, but the address to the present day church is not symbolic. It's literal Revelation unveils the future, but its focus is the present. So look, when it comes to Revelation, we spend far too much time talking about what might happen instead of talking about what is happening. Yes, Revelation talks about the future plenty. In fact, the ultimate horizon of the book is the final judgment, of course, and final salvation, either the lake of fire or the new creation. But why does God show us the future to begin with? Why bother? so that we will live as he's called us to live now 
in the present. Think about it. Every time God gave his people a prophetic word in scripture about what was coming in the future, it was always to bring them to a righteous response in the present. Whether it was repentance, direction for a battle, how to worship him properly, any number of things, the prophecy, the the look into the future was always intended to bring a faithful response from the people of God right then and there. This book is all about God helping his people assess their present lives in light of their eternal future. Why? So we'll live differently once we have seen what truly lasts. And so as we work through this book over the next few months, don't get so hung up on what God is going to do in the future that you miss out on what he's already doing right now. Because listen, if there are things in your life today that you need to repent for, reading this book, seeing what's coming should bring you to a place of deep repentance now. If you've been avoiding something that you know God has called you to do, reading this book should bring you to a place of urgency to answer the call of God in your life now. If you've become indifferent, casual about your commitment to reaching the lost, reading this book should stoke a white hot fire inside of you, a burning passion to snatch others out of the fires of hell now. If your love for Christ and his people has grown cold and your heart has become hard, reading this book should revive your heart and renew your love for him and for one another right now. Listen, if there's pride and unforgiveness in your life, reading this book should humble you to the point that you can walk in forgiveness for those who aren't even asking you for it today. If, if you've allowed the desire for comfort and ease to compromise your convictions, I'm telling you, reading this book should cause you with prejudice to cut everything out of your life that has come between you and the life he created you to live no matter what it costs you now no compromise no surrender no turning back H.E. Manning once said neither go back in fear and misgiving to the past nor in anxiety and forecasting to the future but lie quiet under his hand having no will but his. Let's finish the story for today. Verse nine to the end of the chapter. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him I fell at his feet as though dead but he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. 
Write therefore the things that you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The Lord's day is Sunday, first day of the week, the day on which Christ rose. And so on this particular Sunday on the island of Patmos in his exile, John is probably praying and worshiping in the spirit, keenly aware of the manifest presence of the Spirit of God all around him when he hears the voice of Christ himself. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. The exact order in which churches are arranged along the route which a courier from Patmos would have carried the scroll. And then John turns to see the one speaking to him. And he sees seven golden lampstands representing the seven churches and the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, in divine glory, fulfilling prophecy after prophecy about the risen Savior. Hair like white wool represents his infinite divine wisdom as described and even foreseen in Daniel 7.9, Leviticus 19.32, Proverbs 16.31 and 20.29. And he stands among the lampstands, Jesus' eyes like a flame of fire seeing through the facades of men so that he can say to each church, I know, infallibly diagnosing the condition of each. His feet like burnished bronze will crush any opponents. His voice like the roar of many waters, as in Ezekiel 1.24, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty. In his right hand, he held seven stars, representing the angels, which he alone commands, and from his mouth, the word of God, as a sharp two-edged sword, the word of God, which searches hearts and judges the wicked, which we find in Isaiah 49.2, Ephesians 6.17, Hebrews 4.12, and Revelation 19.15, and his face, was like the sun, shining in full strength. He's the first and the last, the beginning and end of all things. The divine, eternal, immutable, unstoppable, almighty, all-knowing, all-seeing, all-sovereign, and all-powerful king of all kings and lord of all lords. And there he is, Standing before John, who understandably passes out in the presence of the glorified Christ in utter terror until Jesus lays his hand on John and says what we would all hope to hear in the same situation, fear not. And so John gathers himself and begins to write down what Jesus shows him, a book given directly from the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to John that is addressed to and to be delivered to the church, to you and to me. Not to a lost and dying world. Not to the wicked leaders who will conspire against him. Not to the ones we may think need it the most, no. This ultimate story of good versus evil and the end of all things, the warnings, the promise of tribulation, the commands to change or die, 
to wake up, to come to life because of being spiritually dead, to repent, to stop denying him and calling, uh, his calling on our lives, to come back to Christ, to bow to him in reverence and submission. All of it, listen, all of it is addressed to and to be delivered to the church. Revelation was written to the church. Not as an escape clause for Christians when times get tough. No, it was written to wake us up. To prepare us for the return of Christ in the midst of the tribulation that has already come and will surely increasingly come for the church. Revelation isn't a commentary on the state of our pagan culture. He's not telling the lost world to get its act together before he comes. No, he's telling us to get our act together before he comes. We shouldn't expect the world to read this book and be shaken to the core. No, we should read this book and be shaken to the core. It's a wake-up call to the church. It's time for us to repent. It's time for us to wake up. It's time for us to pursue Christ. It's time for us to give our lives for each other. It's time for us to be the men and women he created and called us to be. Because our time on this earth is drawing to a close. His return is near. There is no time left for us to be lazy about our faith or the life he's called us to. It's time to get up and go out into the dark and dying world and sacrifice whatever it takes to shine the light of Christ, the truth of the gospel to a world that is running out of time. And so he wrote this letter to you and to me because we are running out of time to get our act together and do what we were put here to do before it's too late. He's calling us to nothing less. And that's what this letter is. A clarion call to the church. A call to wake up, to get up, and get moving. Because there's only a little time left to take a stand for Christ once and for all. No compromise. No surrender. And no turning back. Let's pray.